ExaFunction is a leader in deploying deep learning models at scale. One of their products is Codium, a coding assistant for software developers based on ExaFunction's deep learning technology. Codium provides AI assistant autocompletion in your IDE, making it easier for you to incorporate deep learning technology in your software development workflow. Farron Mahan is the CEO and co-founder of Codium, and he is our guest today. This episode is hosted by Lee Acheson. Lee Acheson is a software architect, author, and thought leader on cloud computing and application modernization. His best-selling book, Architecting for Scale, is an essential resource for technical teams looking to maintain high availability and manage risk in their cloud environments. Lee is the host of his podcast, Modern Digital Business, an engaging and informative podcast produced for people looking to build and grow their digital business with the help of modern applications and processes developed for today's fast-moving business environment. Listen at mdb.fm. Follow Lee at softwarearchitectureinsights.com and see all his content at leeatchison.com. Varun, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me, Lick. Great. So, so you call Codium an AI-assisted autocomplete for programmers. I, I took that from your website. Tell me a little bit about what that means. Yeah, so one interesting thing that sort of has happened over the last um, maybe year, year or two is uh, generative AI has gotten super popular, but more than being popular, it's become extremely valuable in many, many sort of areas of professional work. Um, one maybe simple area of work that you know people don't think about very frequently is when writing code. I mean, in, back in the day, people would use things like IntelliSense and these things that would autocomplete maybe singular words. But people have figured out how to harness these deep learning models to effectively complete lines, multiple lines of code. And I guess GitHub Copilot is one of the first products that sort of did this, and it's sort of taken the world by storm. Um, Codium offers this functionality entirely for free and the most IDEs possible. So I think that kind of gets to one of my first questions is, it sounds like what you have is something very similar to Copilot, uh, but what are the differences and what's, you know, obviously yours is free, Copilot is, is not free. Besides that, what, what makes you unique from Copilot? Yeah, I think um, maybe one thing that could be helpful is just a little bit of background about like how we got here, um, just to maybe level set like what we're trying to achieve here. Um, so we started we started the company ExaFunction uh, over two years ago. Uh, initially, I worked at a company called Neuro, where we did large scale deep learning infrastructure. That's sort of a team I led. Neuro is an autonomous goods delivery company, um, and as you can imagine, AD companies require doing a lot of deep learning. Right? If if you need to drive a car by itself, it needs to do a lot of detections, predictions, so on and so forth. And sort of started the company with the premise of deep learning was going to revolutionize a lot of different frontiers of technology uh, and build technology to sort of make inference or running deep learning models super efficient at scale. Uh, we ended up managing upwards of 10,000 GPUs across the public cloud for any large autonomous vehicle and robotics companies. We realized around a year ago that generative AI was going to be where a majority of these deep learning workloads were going to go. Instead of people hand tuning a bunch of these models to do a bunch of tasks, there were going to be these general models that had knowledge that could solve a bunch of tasks for you. Uh, maybe a classic example that some listeners or you might have heard of is these models called BERT um, that kind of do natural language processing tasks, right? And it's interesting that these generative models, in some sense, 
in a zero-shot manner, basically without any examples, can solve these tasks, which kind of renders it kind of moot why you would want to train specific models to do A, B, and C, if that makes sense. So we realized a year ago that we would be able to leverage our technology to extremely cost-effectively and at scale run these generative AI applications. And so we picked Codium, and we kind of set an ambitious vision to start with. We believed Copilot was just the tip of the iceberg of what these code assistant technologies could do. Auto-completing code is like exciting. Um, it's you know it, it uplevels developers a ton. But there's a lot of other things developers do, right? Like searching code. They write PRs. They write PR reviews. They execute code and command lines. And because of that, we we set an ambitious goal of why don't we first make a product that's entirely free and serve as many users as possible and start out with autocomplete. But our vision was to do significantly more, and we've already started doing that. Um, so a classic example of a couple of things we've done so far are things like natural language-based search, code-base-aware chat. Um, these are just a couple of things, and, and we've done much more on the enterprise side too. So let's hold off on that. I think that's great. I definitely want to get into where you see this whole technology going, but let's go back to your, your origins here a second uh, too. Um, so you, you moved from specific models that were dealing with you know, uh, uh, driver, driverless transportation systems and move to generative models for, for, uh, code developers, software developers. Why? I understand the switch to generative AI, but why the switch from, you know, from, you know, driverless cars to software developers? What, why that switch? No, that makes sense. So I think when we started, we, we were originally purely an infrastructure company. So we actually provided technology to run these models more efficiently and and, uh, and at scale for a lot of different companies. We actually had customers that were sort of generative AI companies that ran models at GPTJ and and all these other like kind of generative models that were open source. Um, I think we recognized that a lot of these workloads were going to become generative in the future, like potentially even like driverless models were going to become generative workloads uh, at some point. Maybe you use, if you look at what Tesla is doing, they're actually using generative models to path plan lane like what lanes people should actually be driving on. And we were asked so much to basically build these sort of generative apps. We felt though that the coding space was the space where most of the value was going to be there in the short term, uh, just because developers had already gotten so much value from it. And the reality was we needed to go in deep into the stack and not just provide the infrastructure to run the models to build a great app. We needed to go and train our own models too. And we actually ended up doing that as well. Got it, got it. Yeah, it's the way I see software development is it's uh seems to be a low hanging fruit, right? It's it's an easy way, you know, it's 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 a actually a fairly simple implementation. And I shouldn't say simple implementation. It's it's a well understood mechanism for doing generative AI compared to like you know which lane should I be in in a driverless car, which is a lot more complex problem. But yet the return on investment is huge, right? Because just by doing simple um, uh, recommendations, you can dramatically speed up the development process of a software developer. So I, 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 I'm assuming that that feeds into it. Is you can you can take what you learn, of course, and apply it to other technologies. But that's where you are first. So so let's talk about where um, generative AI in general and Codium in particular helps with software developers. Now one of the you, one of the first things is you mentioned is auto completion, where you know, I, you're you're in the middle of writing some routine, and it guesses what you want and helps you helps you figure out 
rather complex modules of how to do what you're trying to accomplish. That's all great. That's all wonderful. I think anyone who's used Copilot or, you know, I, I'm I'm a big user of like of like RubyMine and for my Ruby development as well as other 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 tools, um, you know, can understand how that works. But what else beyond that? Let's talk about where you see the software development AI assisted space itself moving. Yeah. So I think I think it's uh, that's a very interesting question, right? So couple of the other features that I was mentioning that Codium sort of provides. Um, we maybe, maybe I can talk about a little bit about our growth as a company, uh, just so that you can get a sense of like what sort of happened. We started the year around a thousand users and now have hundreds of thousands of users using the product daily. Uh, so we've grown a ton and that's because of a couple of reasons. So one, we've, we've provided the functionality in way more IDs. So like just people don't only write code in Visual Studio, people write code in in Eclipse, people write code in Xcode. Uh, and our goal is to make sure that the technology is democratized and as many people have access to it as possible. The second thing we've sort of done that even features like Copilot don't have is provide things like natural language-based search. So you can actually write a human-readable English query and it'll find throughout your code base where all these things, these sort of events happen inside the code. And we pair that also with a chat application that lives entirely in IDE that kind of knows your entire code base um, as well. Um, and all of these in combination allow us to give kind of the sovereign app experience. This is like a maybe a, a term from like the old school days where like you're able to do everything you want entirely within your ID. And we want to up-level basically every ID that sort of exists out there. Um, we don't believe like developers really quickly change from one ID to another. Like you will never be able to convince an Emacs developer to go and use there and you will never be able to convince an US developer to go and use VS Code. Um, so we want to give like the best experience to where developers are right now. And that also includes the enterprise too, where we've done some quite innovative things as well. So you you mentioned uh, improved search and basically that's the the chat uh, conversational style of of you know help me find so and so in my code. Can you give me some examples of the types of queries you think that are doable today? either, you know, with your product or doable soon with your product? What types of queries can a developer ask and get meaningful results? Yeah, so they, they should be able to do basic queries like where do we where do we fill out this form um, for this part of my website? And it'll be able to find it and also provide a summary. You can also do things that are really common, like let me document my code. Uh, we've implemented some interesting things where we kind of just go through your entire code base, look at where docs exist versus they don't, and make it a, a simple button click on top of the function to just generate the doc string, which is, I guess, like all developers obviously love writing code, but some don't really like writing documentation. So we try to make that like super quick. Or get commit messages is another one, right? <laughs> Generating commit messages from maybe the summary of what changes you've made so far. I think one of the things developers we try to do is try to remove the drudgery of software development because not only are we focused on how do we reduce the number of key presses, we realize that these are not the fun parts of writing software. And I guess the key part of this is for technology we want to we want to sort of deliver. It's technology where like even if it's wrong, it's not something that the user is extremely upset about that it was wrong, which is what made Autocomplete such an awesome product. Um, this is like maybe a like a little bit more of like a maybe a philosophical thing about what LLM products actually work versus don't. And there's like a whole hallmark or reasoning for what we have internally for why an LLM product is good versus bad. Yeah, you're 
you're jumping ahead on me into another question I have coming up. I'm going to hold on to that just for a second, um, keeping with use cases for a moment. Um, so another thing that developers hate doing, or at least a lot of developers hate doing, is generating tests, creating tests. So that's another use case for generative AI. That's and actually how- a really popular one uh, where people will take a function and it's able to use the context of the remaining code base to generate a, a unit test that looks fairly similar to your other unit tests and in the same style of your unit tests and the rest of the code base. Um, so yeah, and I, I don't know if you've noticed this, but autocomplete itself is like awesome by generating unit tests uh, because it's able to pull in context from the corresponding file where the underlying implementation was, plus get a sense of how the other unit tests in the file of the unit test file sort of worked as well. Yeah, I think unit tests are a great use case for generative AI and because it, it avoids a lot of the limitations we were talking about, which we'll get to in a minute. But what about integration tests? Do you see a future where integration tests and other more sophisticated testing structures becomes a use case as well? So I, I think this this comes to maybe one thing that I was trying, uh, I wanted to get to, um, maybe, maybe this is like the right time, which is what makes L1 products kind of work, right? Uh, I guess it's kind of important. There are three things I think about for an L1 product, right? There's the speed at which the generation happens. There's the quality. And then finally, there's the correctability, okay? Like how quickly can you correct the output of the LLM? And I think one thing that's really true about autocomplete, if I was to just maybe break it down for autocomplete, autocomplete is super fast. It's super fast. The quality is good given the amount of text it generates. The correctability is trivial. If it was a bad suggestion, I'm just going to type over it or press escape. It's really, really simple. The tricky part comes if you want to start doing things that are closer to the PR level. I'm going to generate an entire PR. The burden of proof for the product is significantly higher because you're suddenly now making changes on multiple files. And the the sort of cognitive overload of I made up five changes in 10 files is insanely high if a couple of the files are wrong. Like developers just will not want to use the product, even if it is providing some amount of value. And and this is maybe goes back to a classic thing of it is not sufficient for you to be 50% the way there because you're going to burn your burn your users. Like developer trust is going to get eroded. So I think for something like an integration test, the tricky part for these things is there's a lot of time that's needed even just to validate that the integration test works, right? There might be like you need to deploy to some staging environment in the cloud. And that itself might take, you know, tens of minutes. I don't really know. It depends on the actual process. So the burden of proof is it better be right the first time. And that's maybe different than a unit test where it's testing a small chunk of code and it's easily verifiable if it kind of works. Does that sort of make sense? Yeah, it does. It does. Especially since one of the things that makes unit tests hard is to figure out, you know, I know what this module does. I know what I want to test, but how do I build a framework to do the testing? And that's something that you know, that you, you, you know it's either correct or not correct when you first see it. It's easy to get it. It's either right or it's wrong. There's no middle ground. And uh, and so that, that makes it valuable instantly with, like you say, very easy to recognize when, when it's not valuable and throw it away. But um, integrate, like you say, with integration testing, that's not quite so simple, right? Because you don't know whether it's right or wrong because you're, you're, you're wanting to do the test because of the cognitive load and it can do more cognitive load than a human can but you can't trust the results because you don't know. There's no way to verify that it's right or wrong. That, that kind of brings me to, you know, one of the things we hear a lot about generative AI in general right now is, you know, 
you know, the the general statement like this, you know, AI created beautifully elegant and readable text or code or whatever that was absolutely dead wrong. It was great code, works wonderfully, but it doesn't do what you want it to do. And that's that's true with AI generative code. It's with AI generative writing. I do a lot of writing and uh, and you know, you can use generative code for introductions, but not much more than that and things like that. But how do you you know, the, I think you're 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 hitting on it here with this whole thing of you know you can do unit tests but not integration testing. But how do you deal with both the reality that generative code is absolutely certain with what it does, whether it's right or wrong, with the um, perception factor that goes along with it? Yeah. So there is a, there is a couple key things there, which I, I think these are all like really good points. We'll be the first people to sort of tell you that. You should not trust everything that comes out of these applications. And that once again comes back to the whole correctability aspect. If it's easier for the user to correct it and validate that the result is correct, it builds more confidence. And that's actually one of the cool things about unit tests, which are something that we will explore in the future, which is unit tests can actually be run, which is an awesome property. Uh, so what that actually means is if I generate the code, or maybe let's go the other way. Let's say the unit test has already been generated and you actually do test-driven development properly. And I generated the tests, and now I'm going and generating the code. There's actually an easy way to then run the code to actually validate that it was actually correct. And you can build confidence that the generated code is probably correct. Obviously, there's a whole host of other things to think about. Like if you are to run arbitrary code, you better run it probably in a sandbox because you don't want to like RMRF the entire directory. You don't want to delete the entire disk that the user has. Um, one thing that we sort of do to try to make sure that results are less uh, have less hallucinations is try to ground the results and we try to do this like everywhere that we possibly can and if i was to give you two examples of this that could be helpful context is a very key way that we do this we apply context for both chat and autocomplete you asked us you asked me a little bit about sort of where we differentiate from copilot the amount of context we apply to our models for autocomplete are multiple times higher than what copilot uses right now and then on top of that for chat unlike copilot we actually can use the context from the entire code base to ground the result. And then that's your hope for making sure that the generations are more related to the code that you have. So it's kind of structuring the code rather than letting it guess about what's sort of happening. The sort of second thing we do for enterprises, which is kind of interesting, is we fine tune the model for their internal code base. We personalize it for their internal code base. And the reason why we can do that is we actually let them self-host the code, the model itself, because we train it entirely in-house. And what this lets them do is get the best of both worlds where they can get a powerful model, but it's also personalized to their internal infrastructure as well. Cool. cool. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, the, 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 one of the phrases that I'd written down here that I want to talk to you about, but we've, we've been talking about already, but is, you know, the difference between AI assisted coding and AI generated code, right? You know, it's like, you know, the, using AI to help you build code where you can verify whether it's right or wrong, et cetera, et cetera, versus simply using AI to write code for you that doesn't need any additional testing or checking or and, 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 and the world of difference between those two. Um, other than what we've just talked about, are there any distinctions between those two ways of thinking about AI and development that's important to what you're doing? No, it is. It is. I think that's actually a really good distinction. One of the things that popped up and started becoming popular a couple of months ago is this idea of agents, 
which might be more of the the, the latter thing you just mentioned, which was AI generated code. And I think we are quite far. Um, I think it will happen, but we are quite far from from these models entirely generating PRs. And obviously there's a capability limitation here too. Like GPT-4, when you actually put it on programming competitions, it performs in like the bottom percentile of sort of programming competition. So it's it's just not as capable as the best programmers are right now. But also at the same token, the other thing that's sort of missing is the intent aspect of it. Like when I when I generated a PR, the amount of context that I needed to generate the PR, I have so much state in my head about how this code base works. These models in terms of raw context only have 32K tokens, which just for perspective for the listeners is only four files of context. But large code bases are like tens of thousands of files. So in my mind, we are quite far from the point at which you can just let these models rip and they will just generate an entire PR. Because even ignoring the fact that these models don't know, they also don't know all the intent you have of what you try what you're trying to do for a PR. So our perspective here is we should build assisted tools that get closer and closer to AI generation until finally we do generate a PR. But it'll kind of be an incremental approach until we get there. And we want to provide a ton of value along the way. Cool. That's 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 um that's great. That's great. So that's actually a perspective I don't think a lot of people understand that's probably worth emphasizing and maybe talking about it a little bit more. You talked about the 4K token. And what that means is, and please correct me if I'm saying this wrong in any way, is that it can, you know, the, the AI essentially can take into account your environment, but only a limited locality of the environment. Only, you know, 4K or a few K worth of of knowledge in the environment. So we, we keep talking about, you know, generative AI, understanding everything and then giving you results. And in fact, it, it may understand everything, but it does it can't utilize everything in solving a particular problem. It's uh, solving a particular problem is very localized. Now, the way that comes to a coding assistant is like you say, is if it's doing an auto completion for you within a file, it's understanding a few files around the problem set but not your entire code base. Is that a true statement? And how does this, how does the, 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 the enterprise level learning, for instance, change the meaning of that? Yeah. So that was, that was a, a couple of questions there. So I, I think, I think one of the things for autocomplete, the reason why we're, so our autocomplete actual context is, is significantly more sophisticated than, than folks like Gopal. We actually do interesting things like embedding search to find a bunch of local uh, places inside your code base that could be relevant to grab snippets to then do a high quality generation. The only difference is the burden of proof for autocomplete is significantly lower than generating a correct piece of code with a unit test and a PR that comes out. So so rather than looking at you know just a few K of local files, you do a search outwards and finding as much of the of relevant code as you can and bring it in and use that as your code set to that's do right. the, the generation. Okay. That's right. And we have we have comprehensive eval plus a lot of users that we are able to able to get evidence from of like this is working. So hey, if acceptance rates are going up, then we're literally doing a good job. So it's interesting that for autocomplete, we're actually doing some quite sophisticated stuff in terms of padding the context. The only thing though that is I wanted to mention though is it's hard to to use that to build something that's always correct, which is sort of the burden of proof when you want to generate a PR, right? It can't just be like kind of working some fraction of the time. 
because I think developers will get annoyed. It, it can't be the case that I click a button and then 10 minutes later, I get a PR where most of it is wrong. It's, it's going to be like, it's going to be unacceptable, right? It's not going to be used. So I guess that's like the key differentiator. One of the things that I guess we're doing on the enterprise side, because we let companies self-host the product is we actually let the, the model kind of be fine-tuned on their private data, or at least the model is kind of personalized to their private data. So things, so generations are kind of more grounded and semantically understand the rest of the code base. Uh, and that's sort of one way that we sort of help with this, but it's still nowhere near the state where you can generate an entire PR. That is like, it's it's a massive hurdle, basically. Right. Really what it's learning though is the input into the, you know, the advanced search capability, right? You know, it's able to answer the question of, show me where I'm using this form and, uh, you know, or, or show me where I use forms in general within the, my code base because I'm trying to create a new form here. And, um, uh, and it, it knows how to find that within the code base given what it knows about the code base. But it still comes down to it only collects a certain amount of information before it makes a decision about what it's going to make for a recommendation. That's right. For a fine-tuning case, we're, we're able to go a little bit further by actually making it so that the model itself is actually aware of your code base. It's not just the context is more is better quality. The model itself is, is kind of more knowledgeable about your code base. And that's sort of because you're able to tune the model itself um, beyond just the code it was trained on. So what's next for Cody? Um, and then the related question is, you know, what's next for Exafunction? Yeah, so as a company, we're, we're focused on, on Codium. Codium is a product that has a tremendous amount of usage. We want to continue to build products that developers sort of love and use all the time. And I guess that's that's sort of our, our focus internally. Um, we'll be building out more sort of functionality within the IDE that enables developers to write more and more code. So right now, developers are maybe writing singular functions. Uh, we want to figure out how can developers write multiple functions in one go? How can they write an entire file? How can they write a commit? And how can they finally write a PR? And that's going to be a gradual process, right? That that is not going to happen all at once. We're gonna we're gonna sort of get there incrementally. So, do you imagine a freemium model, or do you really see as a free solo pay for enterprise distinction? How how do you see this as being from a monetization st uh, strategy? Yeah, so far we're committed to keeping our product free forever, and for companies that want the security and the ability to sort of fine tune and leverage their entire code base um, and, and sort of pay for the enterprise offering. And there's tremendous interest for that so far. Most companies don't want to ship their code outside of the company. And since we train our own models, we're able to give them the magical experience entirely within their own PPC. Right. That's cool. That's cool. So what about our exafunction beyond Codium or is, you know, is, is, is it, is Codium it right now. That's what you're focused on. Yeah. Coding is the main product we're focused on right now. That's right. Anything else you want to add or anything else uh, um, that I haven't talked about, uh, about what you guys are doing? No, I think, I think everything you asked was super reasonable. Uh, I think it's like these, these models are magic, but also it's good to imagine, good to understand that they're not truly magical. They can't just guess what's in your head and do what you want. Right. So you have to be mindful of that and Build if if anyone out there is sort of looking to build a product or product in the space, think about building products that are reliably good, and and that if that if you think about it from that perspective, you might have something on your hands. 
What I love about this space, meaning the coding assistant space and what you what you're doing specifically, in, in compared to the generic, um, you know, AI um, uh, generative AI space, is that it is grounded and solvable. It's a solvable problem, and it's a problem that's easily understood and recognizable and solved within the AI space within the the generative AI space. People are worried about the larger generative AI issues about, you know, taking jobs away and doing, you know, the, uh, the um, you know, writing scripts for movies or writing, mo- building movies and, you know, all, all of the, the very advanced um, capabilities and of what it could do someday to, to, to remove. But we're a long ways away from those things actually being a reality. And we're a long ways away from some of the vision that people have in generative AI of actually being a useful technology that is reliable. And I think you hit the nail on the head when you talk about the reliability. You can have a you know generative AI generate all sorts of of you know of, of content. It just isn't very useful content. Um, but in the AI assistant space or AI coding assistant space, I should say, I think there is a a lot of value in the ability to um, to to generate um, ideas, which you can either accept or not. It's very easy to transact with the AI and get useful results that are high quality. And, and, and I think that is driving um, uh, areas such as AI assistance to be really the place that's going to get the most benefit out of generative AI in the short term. Do you, you have any comments about that? Or No, it's actually a really good point. There's always a question that I get that you just mentioned, which is like, what's going to happen to jobs for developers? And my, my feeling is, is in five years, we're going to have more developers writing way more code per developer. And the fundamental reason is, unlike most other professions, it doesn't seem like the world has 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 a sort of a, a threshold for how much software it can consume. We've only kept increasing the number of software companies. And probably if there's more high quality software out there, there are more products that are going to get built. Like there's no limit, right? Unlike most other fields. So if we just reduce the barrier to entry for software, uh, kind of just like when people used to write assembly and now, you know, after that people started writing C and then maybe C++ and then maybe higher level languages like Python, all of these reduced the barrier to entry. And the people that wrote sort of assembly, they probably were significantly more leveraged when they started writing C++. And all we're going to do is we're just going to get people writing substantially more software and more people in the field as well. Uh, and so I think it's just a super exciting time to be in. I completely agree. Varun Mohan is the CEO and co-founder of Codium. Varun, thank you very much for joining me on Software Engineering Daily. Thanks a lot, Lee.